0: Thinking about my age when I was going to be a great (laughs) grandfather. Psalm 19. And we're in a series called Psalms in the Summer. Last summer we covered 16 Psalms, and now we're in our third Psalm for this summer. So we'll come to Psalm 19. It's a very famous Psalm because every one of us in the room know how it opens up. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Now, this is a psalm of David, as you see from the superscriptions, to the chief musician, a psalm or a song of David. So this is a a piece of writing that David has committed to paper as a result of reflecting on nature and uh, his reflection on the five books of Moses. And uh, some of the things that he, uh, he's thinking about, these things, and he puts it, to, puts it to paper, and then he turns it over to the chief musician in his temple, and he says, would you put this in music? So that the people of Israel, when they get together uh, on a regular basis, can sing these praises to God. that I feel the Lord has given me? So it's a psalm that David has written. Now, it deals with the theme of revelation. Uh, how God makes himself known. God makes himself known in many different ways. This psalm deals with two ways God makes himself known. Now, we're going to divide this psalm into three sections. In verses 1 through 6, David deals with general revelation. God makes himself known through the creation. General revelation. Then verses 7 through 11 deal with Special revelation. God makes himself known uh, directly to us. He speaks a word through the scriptures. And then verses 12, 13, and 14 to deal with David's prayer. So only three verses of this psalm are actually a prayer. First section, general revelation. Second section, special revelation. And then the third section, David's prayer. Now, before we get started, let me explain the difference between. General revelation and special revelation. Verses 1 through 6, general revelation. Notice it just starts off the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, so in general revelation, we see the sky. The sky reveals something about God to us. We can learn something about God by looking to the sky. Verses 7 through 11, notice the first word in verse 7 is the law of the Lord is perfect. And that is the scripture. We can look to scriptures. And the scriptures reveal something about God to us. Now the scripture is special revelation. It will reveal much more about God to us than the sky reveals. Us. In verses 1 through 6, in general revelation, that would be a wordless revelation. A wordless revelation That's what you see. But in verses 7 through 11, you have a written revelation. That's what you read. God inspires writers uh, to put down his thoughts, and so we get to know something special about God. In verses 1 through 6, we would call that natural revelation. That's how we learn God through nature. And then verses 7 through 11, which deals with scripture, we would call that supernatural revelation. Because all scripture is written by inspiration, a supernatural process. So there are two kinds of revelation. What we're going to call general revelation, the skies, what you see, nature, and then special revelation, the scripture, which is uh, written to us. Okay. Now, general revelation provides just enough knowledge about God to condemn us. Just enough knowledge about God to condemn me. When I look at the sun the moon the sky, I say, whoever this guy is that made this stuff, he is very powerful. I better watch out. I don't know if he's gracious. I don't know if he's loving. I don't know if he's forgiving. In order for me to find that out, I have to look at special revelation. Supernatural revelation. So, natural revelation gives me enough knowledge to condemn me. Supernatural revelation gives me enough knowledge to save me. So that's the basic difference. Now, in this psalm, one thing that you need to note is verse 4, their line is gone out through the earth, and their words to the ends of the world, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 18. And in that section, he's talking about the gospel being preached to all the world and a group of people saying, Well, I've never heard the gospel. You say the gospel's gone to all the world. I've never heard the gospel. And then Paul quotes Psalm 19 and verse 4, and he says, But you're without excuse. Because the natural revelation can be seen from one end of the world to the other. Don't say that you've never heard the gospel. Have you read the sky? Have you read the stars? Don't you realize there's a God? Don't you realize that you're responsible to God? We're all responsible. So he quotes this portion of the scripture. And in Romans 1, he also alludes to it. We'll look at that a little bit later. So let's take a look at this uh, psalm. Let's look at verse 1. Okay? And here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, what do the heavens declare? The glory of God. Uh, The glory of God is His magnificence. You know how great God is. All you have to do is look up at the heavens. I want you to notice the word heavens is plural. Do you know any other place where the word "heaven" is plural in the scriptures? In the beginning, God created the heavens. So when you read that verse, David wants you to go back and think of Genesis 1-1 and creation. So when he says this, he says creation is revealing to us something about God's greatness, something about His magnificence. Now notice that the heavens speak. Look at that word declare. The heavens declare. uh, But they don't speak audibly. The heavens have a voice. But it's a silent voice. It's like if we have a uh, solid friends division here in the Sunday School, where people maybe they can't speak and they can't hear, but guess what? They can they can talk to each other. Can? How do they do it? They, they do it like something like that. A A A L A N. Something like that. that's my name. Now, now Wasn't that a great communication? <laughs> now, if I did that silently, you might learn a little bit about me. You wouldn't learn a lot about me, would you? Well, guess what? The heavens and creation, they speak, but it's a silent witness. You get some general information about God, but you don't get a lot of specific information about God. So the heavens declare the glory of God, and then the firmament shows His handiwork. Now, this is what we call in Hebrew poetry, parallelism. And you can see that parallelism. The firmament in the heavens basically refer to the same thing. The word declare and the word show refers to the same thing. Now, when I say declare, you think I'm talking about speech. I'm going to declare something to you. A declaration of independence. But notice how this declaration comes forth. In the second part of verse 1, the firmament does what? Shows. Shows. That's what you see. It's a declaration, but it's a declaration not intended for your ears. It's a declaration that's intended for your eyes. And when you see something, you can get some information, but you can't get full information. When I go to a museum, and I look at a piece of art, I see certain things, and I might try to figure out that abstract piece of art, or even a realistic piece of art, but I don't know if my interpretation of that art and its meaning is correct unless what? Because if Jim Ray went to the museum, he said, that's not what it means to meaning. Now, we most. But he at the picture and say, now that's a tower and that's a tree. We may have that much right. Both of them. But he says, that tower represents God's strength. And that tree represents his beautiful nature. And I said, that's not what that means. That tower represents the tower of Babel And that tree represents the tree of the knowledge of and Evil. Well, see, we both looked at something. We both got some general information, but... How do we know which interpretation is correct? We'd have to go to the artist, and the artist would have to what? Explain it. Tell it to us. So this revelation, this general revelation, there is a declaration about God. It declares God's magnificence. But the declaration is meant for our eyes, not for our ears. Does that make sense? It's really important that you get that. And the firmament shows forth his handiwork. That means the things that he has made And that's how you know God's magnificence and God's excellence or God's glory by that which He makes, which is creation. Now look at verse 2. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Now again, there's a parallelism. Look at the word "utters." Do you see that? If I utter something, you think I'm talking about something verbal, wouldn't you? But that's not what this kind of utterance is. Notice the second verb in verse 2 is that the night does what? Reveals. So utter and reveals means the same thing. He is utterance is an utterance that is revealed through sight. Okay? So it's very important that you get that. So, when you look at this, what you would see, if I, call, if I wanted to give a title to verse 1, the happens declare the glory of God, I could say the heavens are God's silent witness. The heavens are God's silent witness. If I look at verse 2, the title I would give to that is the heavens are God's unbroken witness. Day by day, night by night. Day in, day out. Day in, day out. 24-7. When you're sleeping... You're not thinking about God? The heavens are just shouting God's presence and God's glory day by day, night by night. So that means, in a sense, that the stars and the moon and the sun are God's preachers. And they are preaching continuously. This year, next year. The thing that just amazes me is an unbroken witness. Our ancestors, it's all the same sun and moon and stars that we see. The same sun, moon and stars that David looked up at in 1000 BC. We're looking up in 2000 AD, 3000 years later, and we're looking at the exact same thing. And from David's time, in fact, way back before Genesis 1 1, up into our time, they have been declaring. God's magnificence and God's greatness 24-7 without a break, non-stop. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Just think of that. So this is his continuous witness. And so an atheist may denounce the existence of God, may deny the existence of God. I don't believe God, the atheist says. And then at night he goes to sleep. And guess what? The whole time, the heavens are declaring God's existence. It never stop declaring One atheist comes and he dies, another one comes and he goes. And guess what? Each one denying, but guess what? The whole time, 24-7, the heavens are declaring God's existence and telling him something about God. You know, it's amazing to me when the communists took over in Russia in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then took over China in the late 40s. They outlawed Christianity, and they tore down the churches. But we couldn't outlaw the stars to tear down the sky. And they said, we will wipe Christianity off the face of the map. We will deny God, and guess what? They were denying God the whole time. The stars and the moon and the sky would just say, God, 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 God. So when communism collapses, guess what? The people say, God, God. So it's amazing. You look at it. So, we see in verse 1 a silent witness to God. In verse 2, we see the heavens are God's unbroken witness. But look at verse 3. We're going to see that they are God's universal witness. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. doesn't matter where you live. They're always up there saying, God. <coughs> it doesn't matter what you're language or dialect is? They speak your language. Can you imagine that? (laughs) They say God is real in your language. Doesn't matter if you speak Swahili, if you speak Cantonese, they're speaking in your language. How does that happen? I couldn't go to China right now and preach the gospel in their language. Or in another country and speak the gospel in their language, but the heavens declare God's glory, doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what your dialect is, it's a universal witness, an ever-present witness. Now look at verse 4. Their line, whose line? The heavens, the heavens, that's what it's talking about. Their line has gone through all the earth, see that's the universal witness. They're words to the ends of the world. And again, you have that parallelism. The line and the words mean exactly the same thing. We don't know exactly what that word line means. It could mean the horizon. When you look at the horizon, there's a beginning, and it's all the way over there. And it's the end. And that's what you see. Everything in the heavens, from one end to the other, is declaring uh, God's presence. And the only way that you could not know there's a God, according to the psalmist, is if you lived in a hole all your life. And you never raised your head out of that hole. And you never looked up. Because everybody that looks up, the skies are declaring that there's a God. And then look in the middle verse 4. It says, In them, in what? In the sky, in the heavens. In them he has set a tabernacle... Or the sun. So, the heavens are the sun's dwelling place. You wonder where the sun lives? The sun lives in, a, in heaven. That's its dwelling place. That's its tabernacle. That's its tent. Remember when God brought Israel out of uh, Egypt? They had to live in tents. They lived in little tabernacles, pup tents. And then God said, I want you to build me a tabernacle. That will be my dwelling place. That word tabernacle there simply means a dwelling place. So God has given the Son a home. Now, what He's going to do, He's now going to start focusing on that word Son. And He's going to describe what the Son that declares God's glory is like. And here's what it's like. Look at verse 5. Which is like a bridegroom. The Son is like a bridegroom. Coming out of his chamber. Now, this describes a wedding day. This describes a young man who has uh, prepared, uh, gotten ready, and dressed for his wedding, and now he comes out of his room and he's going to his wedding. That's what the son is like. How is the son like a, a young man going to his wedding? Well, let me ask you this is Father's Day. Uh, when you were getting married, what was it like when you were going to your marriage? <laughs> Uh, was it a good day? You know, so, uh, face is scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it depends on who you were married to. So you're going to be married to. You know, I got <clears throat> He's going to explain what that means. Okay. The sun was like a bridegroom preparing dressed. going to his wedding. Look at the middle of verse 5. And the sun rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's like an Olympic runner who's prepared all of his life for this one race in the Olympics. I mean, he's worked eight hours a day. He's like Eric Little. Remember Eric Little? Chariots of fire? What did Eric Little say? He said, I've worked all my life. Remember when he said that? For this day. And then he said, and when I run, I feel God's presence. I feel His power surging through my body when I run. And I run for the glory of God. Remember the other guy, Abraham, who ran against Eric Little? Or Abraham running was a chore. Remember how it was? I mean, he, how he had to win the Olympics? He was running for himself. and He was running for his own glory. And it was a burden. But for Eric Little, guess what? When he ran, he just couldn't wait to get in that race. Because he was just right. As soon as I got with went, bam! He just felt the power of God searching in his body, and he just rejoiced. And he would run, and you see a smile on his face. That's the kind of runner that the psalmist is describing in verse 5. He rejoices like that strong man to run its race. He's prepared all of his life for this. And now he rejoices that he gets to do what he does, which is run this race. And the sun is like this the sun has a purpose, and its purpose is the witness for God. It's not just to give us light. It does that. But it has another purpose. And its purpose is to witness to God. And guess what? When the sun comes up every morning, it looks forward to that task. Can you imagine that? That's how the psalmist describes the sun. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? It amazes me when I read things like this. Now look at verse 6. And its rising, that's the sun's rising, is from one end of heaven, and its circuit... To the other. So this is another analogy. Uh, not only does the heaven serve as a tent, a house for the sun, but heaven serves as a track for the sun. Notice those words. It's circuit. It has a circuit that it follows. It has a tr- it's on a track. It follows a certain circuit, just like the old Methodist circuit rider preaching to Circuit riders used to. They had a circuit that they followed all, and they never stopped that circuit from here to there to there to there and reached each circuit, planted the church. Well, the sun has a circuit that it follows. It follows that canopy of the sky, and it never, and nothing escapes. Nothing escapes its light. Is there anything on earth that escapes the light of the sun? And the sun shines everywhere. Light shines upon everyone. It's warmth. Its heat shines on everyone. Can anything on this earth exist without the sun? And just as its heat and its energy touches everyone because it follows a circuit, so its witness touches everyone. And so for an atheist to say there's no God, he must be living with his eyes closed or denying the reality of natural revelation. So that's what David describes. The skies are God's natural revelation. that we can see, we can't learn everything about God, but we sure can learn a lot about him. We can learn He's a God of beauty. We can learn He's a God of powerful God. We can learn He's a God who's very complicated and detailed. And now, beginning in verse 7, he turns to the special revelation of God, which is the scriptures. Okay. The written word. The wordless revelation, now the written revelation. Now I'm going to just read verse 7, and I want to point out several things about this next section to you. Okay? That you can go home with. And this is, again, a way of showing you how you can read the Bible. This is somewhat of a mini little course in these next three minutes on how you need to be able to read Scripture. Remember last week I said, look at the pronouns. Remember when I said? Look at the verbs. Let me just read this one verse, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in every one of those verses, these next few verses, there is a noun, a noun, a descriptive noun. And it tells us what this written revelation is. Here's the noun, the law. Do you see that? The law, that's, in the, that's the noun. Now, you will also see in every one of these verses an adjective. Here is the adjective. Perfect. Perfect. That's what the written revelation is like. It's perfect. That's its character. Its noun is what it is. The adjective is what it is like. Every one of these verses also has a participle. You see that participle? Next word, converting. How do you know it's a participle? I-N-G on it. That's what the word does. That's what the word does. It's a converting word. It converts. Okay. And also in each one of these passages, you'll see the phrase of the Lord. See that? Of the Lord. The law. Whose is it? It's the Lord's. This is the Lord's special revelation to us. Okay, so let's look at that. Let's look at the noun. The law. Okay, so that is what it is. This is a rule, a standard. God has given us a specific standard by which we can know him. What is its character? Its character is what? Perfect. That's where we get our doctrine, the infallibility of scripture. We say scripture is perfect. What does it do? Converting the soul. The word convert or conversion means to turn it uh, turns people away from their old way of life and it turns them toward God. Because when you see what the scripture says, you are drawn to God. And you'll want to turn away from your old life and you'll want to turn toward God's life. The word convert means to transform. To right, change things. It changes a person. The word soul doesn't mean, quote, your spirit, or your invisible soul. It just means you. It converts you. Twenty souls perished in the fire. That doesn't mean twenty souls. It means twenty-one people. Okay, so let's, it converts people. So when you take a dollar and you convert it into a euro, you change that dollar into a euro. Now is that good or is that bad? <laughs> well, this changes from bad to good. Okay, converts souls. Now look at this next phrase in verse. 7. Look at the noun. It's called the testimony of the Lord. This is God's direct witness of himself. This is God's witness. He's going to test. Lord, what do you like? Well, let me testify. Anybody have a testimony here? Tell something. God has a testimony. This is his direct witness of himself. The testimony of the Lord. Look at the adjective the what? Sure. It's dependable. It's dependable. You can count on it. You know why? Because it's perfect. You can count on it. Okay, what does it do? Making wise the simple. It uh, makes us wise unto salvation. Uh, it even makes wise the simple person. Even a child can understand it. Even a person is not complicated think to the very concrete level and become wise. Wise unto salvation. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy to young Timothy, he says, Remember where you learned these things and whose knees you sat at and how you were read the scripture that made you wise unto salvation. That's basically a reference right back to that verse, although it's not a direct quote. It's a reference back to that. So now look at verse 8. Let's look at the noun. What is this revelation called? The statutes of the Lord. These are edicts, guidelines that God gives us. Look at the adjective. These statutes are what? Right. They will lead you in the right direction every time. Morally right. Right versus wrong. I asked Dr. Cain, I said, I've got a headache. And Dr. Cain used me something for my liver. He's giving me the wrong one. Wrong medicine, that's not what I want. He would go to his book, he say, well, he really needs to have this, this is the right thing he needs to have, and he gives me the right prescription. Well here's God's statutes, and guess what? They're right. They will lead you in the right way. They'll take care of you and look at uh, the uh, participle. What do they do? Rejoicing the heart will make you glad. It'll produce gladness. Now, if I just look at natural revelation, I see this world out here, and I say, "This God must be an awesome God." I sure hope He isn't mad at me. Well, that might scare me to death. But in the special revelation, God gives us a little more information, and guess what? When I see in this special revelation, the written revelation, what God's like, it produces gladness. To God. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of grace. That makes sense. Okay, let's keep on moving. In the middle of verse 8, let's look at the noun. It's called the commandment of the Lord. These are orders. These are instructions. Okay? Look at the adjective. The commandment of the Lord is what? Pure. Has no mixture of air. It's not polluted. You don't want to drink polluted water. You want pure water, don't you? That's why we get Dallas City water more pure, or purer, I guess I should say, than what you buy in the stores. Don't think it's not. Oh, yes, it is. You know, uh, this was interesting. Uh, my son Andrew was coming in from... Uh, this is. This was not part of my original teaching. But I have three extra minutes, so I'll get it. He was coming in from New Mexico. He stopped in uh, Amarillo, got some bottled water and and uh, looked at the back of it after he paid two dollars for the bottle of water and it says, uh, taken from the Dallas City Water Supply. <laughs> it right on the well then he got gets on the internet and he looked up this whole thing about water and he discovered that Nestle has gone to many cities throughout the United States and has bought the rights to sell the water supplies in each one of these cities under their own label. And so all they're doing is taking tap water, <laughs> putting it in a <the> bottle. <laughs> well, there's plastic bottles that aren't good for you. <laughs> give it to you. But anyway, what does that have to do with the commandments to be pure? Absolutely nothing. It. So, it's called the commandments of the Lord, the end of verse 8. It's pure, and look what it does. Enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. It uh, clears things up. If I came into this room and these lights weren't on, and I would have to sort of my eyes to be open, but I would I could see outlines, shadows, and I could make it through the room. But it sure would be great if I somebody turned the lights on. It clears things up. Well, natural revelation I can see God through a glass darkly, but through special revelation things get much sharper. So that's why special revelation, scriptures. Are very important. There's a sense in which natural revelation is like a, a, a primer. It's like an ABC book that you start kids off with, and then we have this you know, better textbook that explains things at a deeper, clearer level. Now look at verse 9. Now notice what this special revelation is called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Do you ever realize that the scripture was called the? Fear of the Lord. Strange, isn't it? But what it does is it shows us the severity of God. Uh, In nature, we can see that God is powerful. We wouldn't know exactly whether he should be feared or loved or whatever, but it shows here that uh, it shows us that we are to uh, fear God. Uh, Some people say respect, but usually fear means fear. Uh, When you fear something, you respect it just as well as fear. Now, Look at the adjective. The fear of the Lord is clean. Does any of this sound sort of familiar? Sort of like a thing repeated over and over again? Like he wants you to learn it six different times? It's clean. It's not polluted. It's not corrupt. This word has not been corrupted. When something's corrupted, it produces decay, doesn't it? You uh, get rust on an item that's Item items start to decay. Uh, and, but things that are pure don't decay. 24 karat gold, does that decay? No, that's pure gold, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. So, here's what we have. Look, it's pure, see? It, it doesn't decay. And that's why the end of verse 9 says, in the participle, what it does. Enduring for how long? Forever, because it doesn't decay. Because it's pure. So it's clean. Now look at verse, end of verse 9. This special revelation is called the judgments of God. If you want to know God's thinking on a particular situation. How God would adjudicate a situation. God's decisions. These show forth God's decisions. And the way God thinks. Notice that his judgments and his justice are, look at the adjective, true. They are and righteous. It says they're true and they're righteous. That means he always makes the right decision. I learned that from scripture. God never makes a wrong decision. God is not a man that he should lie. God always tells the truth. So we learn that from Scripture. Uh, and then we instead of having a participle here, he ends it with this word altogether. The judgments of God are true and righteous at the end of verse 9. Altogether, there is not one exception. Now in light of this, what David does, he makes a comparison with his special revelation to other things. Look at verse 10. These scriptures, the special revelation, are more to be desired than gold. They are better, the Bible is better and more valuable than gold. And then he says, uh, let me even emphasize that a little more. Yay, more desired than what kind? Much, 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 not one ounce, not ten ounces, much 24 karat gold. Now, the last time I looked, gold was running about $1,250-some-dollars in ounce. One little ounce, $1,250. If you had that in your pocket, would you be careful with that? If you had a lot of them in your pocket, would you, if you had hundreds of those, hundreds of those at $1,250, would you consider them valuable property? Would you at least put them in some sort of, at least I knew your pillow or something. You <laughs> want to do something. How valuable would that be? Hey, that is valuable. Well, guess what? The Scripture is more valuable than that. We should desire Scripture more than that. And then look what he says at the end of the verse, the middle verse then. It's not only that, it's sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey. And then he said, well, let me let me amplify that. Hey, it's sweeter than the honeycomb. It's sweeter than much honey. A lot of honey. It's not like a goblet of the honey. It's like the whole honeycomb. Now, if the first part of verse 10 deals with profit, gold. The scripture is more profitable than gold. Okay? And let me tell you, gold's profitable right now, isn't it? In this society? If gold deals with profit, Then honey deals with pleasure. It's more profitable than gold. It's more pleasurous than having all your honey, which was a very important thing in those days. Now, here's the question Is that how you feel about the Scripture? Do you savor that Scripture? Do you treasure that Scripture? Is it that important to you? Is it that precious? you treat it as if it's perfect? Can you imagine having something that's a perfect item? Something perfect. A perfect diamond. Without a flaw. We're not talking about one of those I or J character diamonds. Whatever. We're talking about those ones that are so, like, once in a lifetime. The one that's clean, the one that's pure. The most valuable diamond in the world. The scripture is pure, it's perfect, it's valuable. How do we treat it? Do we do we find pleasure in it like the people in those days, if they had honey, which was so rare? Like you had a lot of fine twenty four karat gold. Do you, do you treasure that word like that? Or do you take it for granted? Now, just think about coming to Sunday school class. I'm not talking about whether we show up or we don't show up. I'm just talking about how we deal with the word. Just how we deal with the word. When we come, do we go, ah. the street wasn't as good last week as you would Or we say, man, look, did you see what was in the word today? Woo! The street didn't do it very good, but man, that word sure wasn't good. <laughs> Or do we take it for granted we should be we should treasure this word? Now look what he says in verse 11. Moreover. He said, let me, let me give you one more thing. By them, by the scriptures. Your servant is warned. Warned of what? Warned of danger. Warned of living the wrong way. Warned of judgment. And the scriptures give us warning and convicts us of our sins. Warned of danger. And look at this. Moreover, in keeping them, there is great reward. Warned of danger and rewarded of duty. We're told that if we live right and serve the Lord, that there is a reward. And doesn't that what the New Testament says as well. It's basically a reward. And uh, very interesting though, if you look at the wording very carefully, it says, in keeping them, there's a great reward. You see that in verse 11? It doesn't say for keeping them. It says, in keeping them, there's a great reward. Think about that. You want to meditate on something this afternoon? Well, I'll give you the answer now. But these are the kinds of things that should drive us crazy when we read the scripture. It doesn't say, for keeping them, there's a great reward. It says, in keeping them, there's a great reward. Just like For keeping flowers, I don't get a reward for keeping flowers, but in keeping them, it's a great reward. It's a beautiful aroma of that flower. Just in keeping them, there's a reward. And just in keeping the Word of God, there's a reward. Because it pays off just in health and attitude. Forget about the in-kind rewards, what you're going to get when you you stand before the Lord and the rewards are for your duty. This is just in keeping them, there's a reward. No, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. There's a benefit right now in keeping it, not later. So he ends his section on special revelation uh, with verse 11. Now, in verse 12, we come to his prayer. So here's what he says: Who can understand his errors? Now, David is going to reflect a little bit on his life in light of natural revelation and special revelation, and he answers a question. He says. Who can understand his errors? Now that's what we call a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is a question that has an obvious answer. So here's the question. Who can understand his errors? And the answer is, no one. We don't even understand the mistakes that we make. Why we do things in the way we do them? Because the heart is desperately wicked. And we can be deceived by our heart. So we don't even understand the way we live and why we sin the way we do. I can't figure out why I do the things I do sometimes. So look what he says. Here's his first prayer. He says, cleanse me from secret faults. He asks for forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness. Because the word is pure, he knows what's right and wrong and now he sees, hey, I've been wrong in some of the ways that I live and so now he asks God to forgive him. Now notice he calls them secret sins. Uh, Most commentators say that this refers to uh, sins of omission and sins of ignorance. Sins, when he says, who can know the errors, Uh, they say that this means that, uh, uh, hey, we sin every day, we don't even even know when we do it. We don't even know when we make a mistake. They're even hidden from us. And so he says, Lord, I've, committed all kinds of sins, uh, and I'm not even aware of them, uh, cleanse me of those. And then, his second prayer is found in verse 13. and He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. These are sins that you are aware of, and you do well for them. These are the sins you say, well, I know I shouldn't lie, but I'm going to do it because I know God will forgive me anyway. That's presumptuous. In the Old Testament, presumptuous sins were not included in the atonement. You couldn't be forgiven for presumptuous so. sins. We were only committed for these sins that were sins based on emotion and temptation, <laughs> you fell into a sin. But to start calculating and say, oh, I think I should do this, oh, I think I should do that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do it. And an act of yeah, premeditation, calculation, you rebel against God, that's what the Scripture refers to as a presumptuous sin. And the Old Testament says there was no forgiveness for that. He said, well, well. So, he goes on and he says, let them, that's the presumptuous sins, not have dominion over me. Now notice he's not talking about a sin where maybe you've done it once. You slipped. You calculated and you did sin you did rebel against God. We've all done that. David did that, didn't he? Saw a woman. Said, "I want it." It's one thing if you know he would have an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We could have chopped that up for temptation. He's too weak. Whatever. But then he calculated how to get the husband out of the house and on the front lines so he could kill in a war. Now that's presumptuous sin. Now here's what he says, David did commit a presumptuous sin. But notice what he says in verse 13. First of all, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. That's number one. It's up to me, I'll do it. So, Lord, I need you to keep me from doing it. And then he says, let those sins not have dominion over me. Don't allow them to rule my life. It's one thing to make it do a terrible sin. That's terrible. Hopefully we'll never do that. But, he says, don't allow it to take control of my life because if it takes control, control of your life you would have gone too far. And the chances of you getting back are very, very strong. So we need God's help. So he says, Lord, verse 13, keep your servant from consumption something By the way, that is a, a prayer that most lost people He'll say, Lord, let me <laughs> See, when I was lost, I wonder, did I want the Lord to restrain me from sin? I want to be restrained. Don't tell me what I do, what I can't do. I'll do what I want to do. I would, wouldn't say, Lord, restrain me, I'd say, Lord, let me be at it. <laughs> because sin for the lost person is delight. But for the saved person, it's a burden. And David knows what a burden it is to get under a sin like this. And so he cries out and says, Oh, Lord, I need your help. Restrain me from these presumptuous sins. Keep me back from those presumptuous sins. Don't allow these presumptuous sins to take control of my life. And then verse 14 is how he ends. it. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, I don't know if this is a wish that David is like a third prayer where David saying, And Lord, prayer number three. But uh, everything I say and everything I think about, I meditate on the be acceptable in your sight. So I don't fall into the presumptuous sin. Or, is this the fruit the fruit of converted soul Is this the fruit, the result of a person who is sold out to the Lord? Where he is this the antidote, antidote for presumptuous sin or is this the result of keeping away from presumptuous sin? We don't know that. But he says this. Number one the words of our mouth, he wants the words of his mouth to be acceptable in God's sight. We should all want that. And number two, the thoughts of his heart be acceptable in God's love. A lot of people think a lot of things that they don't say. David said we shouldn't even think. Even our thoughts should be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Because out of the what? Heart, the mouth, speaks. And you might not know a microphone. (laughs) We know politicians that said all kinds of things. Not knowing the microphone. Anymore. And they let out some curse word or whatever. And it makes national news. And so David says, hey, what we think in our heart and what we speak, both of those should be acceptable in society. And then he says this, O oh Lord, and look what he says, my strength, For David to do this, he needs God's strength and my Redeemer. And when I fail, I need your forgiveness. Let the meditation, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight of God. Sounds a lot like Romans 12, doesn't it? One. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and Acceptable will of the Lord. So uh, if we want to do what is acceptable to the Lord, we need to guard our mouth and we need to guard our heart. So what we've seen here is general revelation that has a purpose. It shows us about God. Special revelation shows us that we can be saved and even convert the soul. And based on that special revelation, now that we have this knowledge, this prayer, 12, 13, and 14 should be our prayer. Oh Lord, keep me from sin, especially presumptuous sin that it might not be of. Amen. We'll pick up Psalm 29. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It leads the way so that we don't have to go astray. We have clarity on the situation. We don't know have to say what is your will and what's not your will shown it truly right here. It is right, it is clear, it is pure, it guides surely. So Lord, help us to faith this word life to our own life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.